It's time to write a new story. This is Success Stories with Madison Piper. It's the place where women discuss how to make an impact. Here's your host, Madison Piper. We like to talk a lot about passion and purpose here at Success because after all, identifying our passions and having the confidence to pursue our purpose is one of the most fulfilling things in life. But what about when life seems to be happening to you and not for you? And the life that you've always imagined for yourself seems to be uncontrollably changing and suddenly you're faced with all of these adversities that you could have never even imagined. That's what today's guest faced, but to a major extreme. Today, we talk to author, entrepreneur, and winner of MasterChef, Christine Ha. Now, Christine is a writer and a chef, but she's also something else. She's 100% blind. Now known as the blind cook, Christine was a graduate student in 2001 when she was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease that caused permanent vision loss, something that's unimaginable to most of us. She was a young woman in her 20s, passionate about writing and cooking and faced this hardship that poses a risk not only to her ability to do all of these things, but to something we all take for granted, our independence. But despite these cards that she was dealt, she chose resilience. She chose to persevere and her hard work and determination and competitive edge gave her the confidence to relearn these things and move forward in a way that would inspire the lives of millions, becoming the first ever blind contestant and winner of MasterChef in history. Christine's story is proof that if you have your heart set on pursuing a dream, you can achieve it no matter what circumstances stand in your way. So Christine, thank you for joining us here on Success Stories. We're so honored and excited to have you here today. Thanks for having me. Of course. You know, Christine, your story is is really incredible. And for people who don't know it, I would really like to start from the beginning. You know, usually on this podcast, we have like a lot of advice-driven information, but I really want to get to the root of kind of how it all started for you, you know, when you were diagnosed um, with the disease that caused you to lose your vision and and just really start from the beginning, how you got interested in food, where you were in your career, the transition and everything. So if you just want to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I can give you my background story in, in a few minutes. So I guess to start from the very beginning, my parents were both Vietnamese refugees that came to the U.S. in 1975, right around the fall of Saigon. And I was born in Southern California. I grew up as an only child, and my mom, of course, cooked a lot of Vietnamese food. So growing up, I ate all of that stuff, but didn't really know what good food was from bad food. It was just all the food I knew, and I loved her cooking, uh, except it being, um, I think, a a child, like a first-generation Asian-American going to school, if I ever brought this food to school, it was sort of an embarrassment because it was different. Mm. It didn't smell great. Uh, It was exotic, I guess, is what it was called back then. So I often found myself wanting to trade my lunch for my classmates, like bologna and cheese sandwiches or peanut butter jelly sandwiches to no avail. Uh, And it wasn't until I went into college, uh, so I was a young adult uh, at the time, that I decided to teach myself how to cook. Uh, My mom actually ended up passing away when I was 14 years old and never taught me how to cook, never left a recipe behind. So as an adult, I missed the foods that I grew up eating and decided to teach myself. And so I bought cookbooks, um, you know, Vietnamese cookbooks and started teaching myself these recipes and experimenting in the kitchen uh, just as a complete novice cook. And Of course, there were a lot of bad dishes I cooked at first back then, but then after a few 
uh, trials. I finally created something that was good. And the first dish I successfully cooked was a ginger braised chicken. That's a very simple Vietnamese dish. And my friends and my roommates actually ate it all, had no leftovers. So it was at that moment that I, the spark of uh, interest and joy in cooking really happened in me. And it was, uh, it was kind of about, now that I look back and reflect on it, I realize it's about being able to create something uh, and feed other people or make other people happy with my creation. Mm-hmm. So cooking just eventually became a, a big hobby of mine. I tried to learn all I could about it, um, got pretty good at it, but coincidentally it was around the same time that I started experiencing a vision loss in one of my eyes. And it turned out it was optic nerve inflammation. And uh, it wasn't until four years later that I was correctly diagnosed with neuromyelitis optica or NMO for short. So it's uh, an autoimmune condition that's similar to multiple sclerosis, where my immune system attacks my neurological system. It primarily affects the optic nerves and the spinal cord. So uh, over the years, I've had several uh, attacks on both my spinal cord and my optic nerves. Fortunately, I've bounced back pretty well from the spinal cord inflammation. Uh, and, you know, I don't have any tingliness or, or, or any paralysis in my limbs anymore, but the optic nerve, um, the optic nerves did not recover as well. And that's how I gradually lost my vision in my twenties. Um, so fast forward a few years, I, I guess I left the corporate world when I was going through all these health issues and decided to go the creative route, uh, and, and get a master's in creative writing. And it was in my last semester of uh, schooling that I decided to audition for a master chef. And then that, that is really what launched my culinary career. Wow. I mean, I, I can't even imagine being in your twenties. So this, this wasn't something that you were born with. I mean, or, you know, that happened at a young age, you were established, you were getting a master's degree, you had a career, um, and you had to start over essentially. What was that like? It was definitely challenging. I mean, people look, you know, who know me now or who have seen me on television, uh, they always wonder like how I've been able to remain positive and optimistic. But, you know, life is not always easy. It's there are many challenges in life, as many of us know. And going through those things, I think, as a young adult was definitely difficult when a lot of my peers and my friends were healthy. They were having fun, like uh, climbing the the corporate ladder, figuring out stuff for their career. Uh, And for me, it was my life was pretty much turned upside down when I started having to deal with all of the health issues. And and I didn't really know anyone that had my condition at all. NMO was uh, still considered a rare disease and an orphan disease back Mm -hmm. then in in the 2000s. So I didn't know anyone um, that had NMO. I didn't really have any resources. Uh, The only stuff I could find online was in San Francisco and, and in the U.K., So there wasn't much known about NMO. So I felt very isolated and alone and none of my friends or nor anyone in my family could relate like it didn't run in my family. So it it felt very alone. Um, It was tough. It was it was difficult to lose my individuality or or my independence as well, I guess. Um, And I just felt um, completely lost, I guess. So I think what really just helped me through it, though, was perseverance and determination and the realization that regardless of what happens to me, the world will keep on spinning and days will still go by. And it's really up to me and my choice, whether I decide to figure out how to play the cards I was dealt with and, 
and pick, you know, pick myself up and, and adapt and, and try to be, continue to be a part of society or give back to this world in spite of my challenges, or I could just give up and drop out. And that's, I knew that's not what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you, you really had to build that, that muscle of resilience. And I, I feel like a lot of people, when they're faced with struggle, they just, decide like, you know, it's not worth it or I can't do this. And it really, really takes a toll on their mental health. And it's, it's a journey to get back into like a healthy mental state. Did you ever have to go through that? And if you did, how did you overcome it and, and kind of accept the cards you were given to move forward and not just move forward gracefully, but, you know, with a vengeance, you know, you went on to, to win MasterChef. I mean, sure. I, I feel like I did struggle a lot with the the mental side of things and the emotional side of things. And, and there were a lot of ups and downs and one day would be better than another. Maybe I'd have a whole week of days straight where it was a struggle. And I think, uh, you know, a few things helped me through those times. One was breaking it down and, and not, and, and trying to just take things sometimes day by day or even hour by hour and just trying to get through each minute. And, and, uh, another part of it was, um, I think learning to grieve the process of losing my sight and, um, learning to process the, um, the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And, uh, a, a third thing was also surrounding myself with people who, cared. And even though uh, that was kind of, um, a double-edged sword, because I, I guess in some ways, like I have very good friends and family around me who really wanted to help and who tried to go through the struggle with me. But at the same time, they didn't really know what it was like to, to be me or go through what I was going through. So it didn't always translate. I think that the things that they were trying to do for me, but, mm -hmm. uh, I, I think the ones that helped me the most were the, and for, to this day, I'm truly grateful for are, are the people that don't pretend to try to understand my struggle, mm -hmm. but just sit alongside with me and say, I know it sucks and I'm here to do whatever you need me to do, whether it's take you to the doctor's office, take you to the grocery store, get, bring you food, feed you, um, help get your mail, read your bills, pay your bills for you. Um, just any of those little things. Um, and I think it's just people who try to be helpful and not try to pretend to um, to completely understand what I'm going through, but just be there with me in the suck of it, if that makes sense. <laughs> that, that makes total sense. I mean, like, you know, what's coming to mind is I feel like, I mean, a lot of people are innocently don't know what to say. Right. But then there are people right. who, who really, they, they want to relate to you and they almost like, I don't know how to put it in a nice way, but like they're there for you on their terms and they know exactly how you feel. And, and this happens in a lot of areas of life and, and really they have no idea how you feel and they're not really there for you because there's a difference between people being in your circle and people being in your corner. Is that something that you experienced? Yes. I think you, yeah, you hit that a hundred percent. Like it, it, it completely makes sense. And, mm -hmm. and I, I felt like I, I dealt with that too. And it was the sorting out of people who, and I try to understand too, that not everyone processes what I was going through in the same way. Like I had some friends who didn't know how to deal with, with what I was going through. So they, they kind of ignored it, mm -hmm. which was not something I 
understood at the time, nor, um, nor did I really accept it at the time. Like that mm-hmm. was tough. Um, and then there's other people who tried to equate what I was going through with something they've gone through before, even though it, you know, it's, it's different. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's tough too. Cause then, you know, and I, I feel like all of this has really taught me to be a much more compassionate person. And mm-hmm. I feel like I'm pretty aware and socially aware and emotionally aware on, on how to deal with other people's struggles. Like, cause I know exactly what I, I appreciated and, and needed and wanted at that time going through those things. So I feel like I'm, I know how to provide that for other people now. And it, and it really is important to not, um, try to, you know, say things like, I know exactly what you're going through because you don't, you know, mm-hmm. first of all, like maybe it is the same, the same diagnosis or the same, um, health issues, but maybe, you know, people still process things differently. Some people mm-hmm. want, you know, want a lot of help. Some people are still struggling with the loss of the independence. So I think it's, it's important to let people know that you don't completely understand, but you understand mm-hmm. that it's difficult and that you're here to do whatever, um, it is that you can offer to help make their lives a little bit easier. And I, and I think also it's, um, it's important to, um, and there's also a balance where, you know, some people, they want a lot of help and some people don't. So you have Mm -hmm. to kind of feel that out too. And, and, and what I've noticed is oftentimes people say to someone in times of struggle, like, let me know if there's anything I can do, but most Mm -hmm. people aren't going to reach out and ask Mm -hmm. for help. So you need to just do it. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's a really good point. Like, I feel like that's a really common phrase is let me know if there's anything I can do for you. But you're right. When people are going through something extremely traumatic or they're struggling really, really bad, the last thing that they're going to do is reach out and say, listen, I need help. Oftentimes they're just struggling enough and just trying to get through the day, right? So just going out and doing it. And and I, I think that there is like a certain level of like relatability that is comforting, but like you can't always be relatable. You can't always tie things back to something that happened in your life. A lot of the times, like situations like this, it's completely unrelatable to anybody. And the best thing that you can do, like you said, is just say, I'm here for you. That I, exactly. I, I see you and I'm, I'm here for you. And I want you to know that. Exactly. So, so something I want to talk to you about, like, honestly, is how you found the courage, A, to start cooking again, how you learned to start cooking again without vision, like, because that, that had to be hard. I mean, and it had to be frustrating, especially something that you were so good at before having to start from scratch and relearn everything. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Yeah. I, as I lost my vision, I, struggled a lot with, like I had mentioned the loss of independence. And I, I feel like independence is something that I, I really value because growing up as an only child and then losing my mom when I was young, I felt like I always had to rely on myself and I grew up fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this situation, it really forced me to depend on other people and ask for help because now I could no longer drive myself to places or run my own errands or at the time read my mail or, um, you know, make my own food. So it, it really forced me to, to be more dependent and realize that it's okay to ask for help. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make me a weaker person. And in the end, I realized that a lot of the people around me really appreciated me asking for the help because they wanted to help and they didn't know how. Mm -hmm. And so part of this kind of led me to 
um, also seek out like a new, new adaptive independent living skills. So through, um, a state run agency, uh, I was able to apply for, uh, for different, um, instructors to come and, and help me learn to read Braille and adjust to my life of new, of, of newfound vision loss. So for example, uh, reading Braille, learning to use technology like screen readers, um, or magnifiers, um, learn to kind of use different adaptive tools in the kitchen or around the house to mm-hmm. live more independently. And so I was now realizing that this was going to be the new norm was that I wasn't going to regain my vision back. So I had to figure out how to try to be uh, less dependent on people around me. And I wasn't afraid to ask for help, but I knew like I couldn't, you know, I I was living by myself at the time. So I I, I couldn't always depend on people to rush over and, and make me food. So I, I kind of just started really small and learned how to cut an orange again and, and do everything by touch and and then eventually dared to turn on the stove again and, and learn how to do everything around the kitchen with my remaining four senses. Um, and so I just, like I said, started small, like cut vegetables or fruit and then fried an egg and maybe made instant noodles. And then just every small step was kind of like leading to bigger things. And eventually once I conquered something that seemed uh, minute or, or, you know, easy, then I would move on to the next thing. And so, uh, I guess, you know, part of it is just my personality I get from my parents for being a very determined person. (laughs) Some people say Mm -hmm. stubborn. So I knew that I wanted to be able to at least not necessarily cook great (laughs) again, but, Mm -hmm. uh, at least be able to cook for myself so that I could live more independently and live alone as a visually impaired person. So Mm -hmm. it just started from that, but I guess it kind of snowballed as I, as I just learned to adapt. And I, because I missed cooking, I just kept at it and tried to figure out how to do things differently around the kitchen with less vision. And, and that's how I just started cooking again and getting better and better at it. And then learning to tune in with my other senses more so, so that cooking became a more intuitive process than it was before. Mm-hmm. You know, Christine, I hope our listeners are really, are, are really, tuning into your story and learning that like, no matter how frustrated you are, like not to give up because your story is like a true example of like what resilience can lead to. I listened to a TED talk that you did, um, on, on the TEDx stage. And I heard you say there was at one point, you know, you were just trying to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you threw it in the trash because you couldn't get the bread to align. And it was so frustrating. And I can't even imagine that frustration that you felt because that's, you know, at something, at some point in your life, you, you take those skills, the ability to do that easily for granted. And then you, you reach a point or you reached a point where you had to start over and you just having the the grit and determination to move forward and practicing that muscle of resilience and getting stronger and stronger every day with these new skills, with learning how to read Braille, with learning how to chop vegetables again and, and, and turn on the stove again. I mean, that eventually that all led you to master chef. So I want to talk a little bit about your experience on master chef and, and what that was like for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I auditioned for MasterChef not mm-hmm. really thinking or not having necessarily the goal to win. Mm-hmm. So I was I was uh, encouraged to audition by my friends and my family, especially my husband, uh, who thought that 
you know, I was a fairly decent cook and that my story was one that should be heard and would resonate with many people in America. Uh, you know, he always talks about the David and Goliath story and he says, you know, you're like the underdog. People want to see you succeed and, Mm -hmm. and you cook well. So I think the story would resonate. So I was like, okay, in the time, at the time (laughs) I was in grad school for creative writing. So as an artist, I, I feel like one tries to live as much as they can in life and experience as many things as they can. So they can come back home and write a story or feed their creativity in whatever art that they, um, practice in. So for me, it really was just, I'm going to go audition and see how far I get, but really it's just to have an interesting story to write about, whether it's, you know, in the form of an essay or turn it into some fictional short story or something. Mm-hmm. So I really just went for the experience. Um, and I guess, you know, lo and behold, I just continued to pass challenges and not to say that it was easy, uh, but it was really, um, for me, it was just something I wanted to do to experience. And then once I was there, I started really learning a lot about cooking and eventually learned a lot about myself mm-hmm. and the things that, um, I could overcome the cha- the different challenges I could overcome to still succeed in a competition like that. And, and really that's, um, I think in some ways, not being able to see sort of led to my success on the show is because I was less concerned with what the person next to me was cooking or how, how they were doing. And really mm-hmm. I started thinking that I was just competing against myself. Like my, every day I went in that kitchen, as long as I was a better cook that day than I was the day before and took the things that I learned from the past challenges to, 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 um, enable me to do better in the, the current challenge. Then I felt like that was really all I could ask of myself and of the challenge of my experience on MasterChef. You know, your your husband was right. Everybody wants to see, you know, the underdog. <laughs> he was he hit the nail on the head right there. Everybody <laughs> wants to see the the underdog like achieve something. But I don't think you were the underdog. I think that, you know, you were always, you know, meant to go as far as you did in this competition. I mean, obviously you're very talented, but your story, and I'm sure you know this, I mean, it tugged to the heartstrings of everybody in our nation. I mean, you brought a lot of people to tears and and showed them, you know, that despite your circumstances, you can live out your wildest dreams. What does that impact mean to you? You know, Matt, it's funny that you you say that because even to this day, sometimes it still feels surreal. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's because I'm I'm me like living in my, my body and just kind of looking out to the world. I'm like, okay, well I've done this, but it's just me. I don't feel like that special or anything. I just feel like I'm someone who had the challenges I did figured out a way to live with these, um, setbacks and adapt. And then I was in, I feel like I was in the right place at the right time. And I do believe that I'm a hard worker, but I also believe like a lot of my success comes from uh, opportunity and learning to seize the opportunity when it's there. Uh, so for me, it's like, it's hard for me to say, and it still feels, um, not unreal because I mean, I've been living in like in this life for a while, but it's, it's definitely, uh, it's, it's interesting because it's times I just feel like, like I mentioned, like just kind of your average person, but then, Mm -hmm. When I do hear people's stories um, that I meet and they tell me in person or they write a very heartfelt email 
about what my story has done for them in a positive way, it, it really feels special and it reminds me and keeps me grounded in a way where I, I realize, you know, life is hard for everybody, but this is why I continue to do what I do and work hard. And whether it's, you know, continuing to be in front of the camera to spread my story or running restaurants to, to allow people to experience um, a good time with their friends and their family in, in the restaurant or um, continue to do interviews like this to, to, to highlight my story or, and share honestly about my ups and my downs in my life. And, and I feel like it's all hard work because it's work and it's, you know, still, it takes up a lot of time, but I know that I've been blessed with a, a particular platform and I need to use that platform to really positively influence the world and other people's lives. So it's a nice reminder to that, the, the purpose of why I do the things I do. You know, you mentioned that you get letters from, from fans or people meet you and they tell you how they changed your life. Would you mind sharing like maybe a story that, that really tugged at your heart that someone shared with you and how you impacted them? Yeah. One that really sticks me was someone had emailed me years ago and they had told me that they were, um, they were suffering from depression for quite a while. They weren't getting out of bed. They did have a family. They were just flipping through the television from bed and came across uh, reruns of MasterChef, uh, followed my story and uh, said that because of me and watching me on my show, on, on the show and, and overcoming what I did, it, it encouraged them and motivated them to get out of bed and, um, deal with their suicidal thoughts and then, um, and wow. get help for that, but also start trying to cook in the kitchen for their family. And so, it, I mean, that's like one, one story that really does mm -hmm. stick out. And, and I, you know, I hear stuff from children too, who maybe were bullied or who didn't have the courage to try out for, um, an athletic sport at school. And then they see like, oh, you know, I, in spite of my challenges, like I still tried and I succeeded. So that, that made them, um, have the courage to try out for the soccer team or, mm -hmm. or, or do what they needed to do to, to feel, you know, more fulfilled as a child. So it's, it's all these different stories that I hear. And I, I've heard many over the years and sometimes it feels, um, you know, it, it's it sometimes it feels like it's kind of going through the motions and um the day the daily you know just my daily life of like getting up checking email like trying to figure out what's going on at the restaurants and stuff but it's when i learn about real people's real stories that really um these things touch me in a way where i'm i feel more purpose and more invigorated to keep doing what i do you know, the, the power of purpose is so strong and, and, and your purpose, you have reached so many people and given the, the inspiration, like, you know, the stories you just told to get up and keep going despite feeling like giving up because, I mean, that's what you did. You, you know, you could have given up. You could have said, these are the cards I'm dealt and I, I this isn't what I want for my life. I'm sure it, it wasn't, but you didn't give up and you pushed through. And it's a, it's a great reminder that the world needs you. Like your story, Christine, is a, a great reminder that the world needs all of us. You know, we're all here for a reason. No matter the cards that you've been dealt, like you might be dealt those cards to make an impact, an impact greater than you can ever imagine. I mean, look at the impact that you've made. 
seriously. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really it's really incredible. And I, you know, we, we were just talking about MasterChef. I want to ask you a little bit about your experience on the show. I mean, like, I think that you, like not only were you the first blind contestant or visually impaired contestant on MasterChef, I think on any cooking show, if I had to guess. Now, I don't if I, you know, what is like, what was your experience there compared to the other contestants? Like, did you, did you struggle? Did you ever feel like giving up? And if you did, how did you push through? Yeah. Before I went on the show, I hear, I've heard from the crew and the staff, like after, after I'd finished filming the show, but they, they did talk about, okay, there's this blind cook who is, going to be brought on to, to cook on the show, but we need to figure out a way to level the playing field for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that meant like equipping me with, um, with talking cooking appliances or, um, giving me a braille label maker if I needed to braille something out or marking my station with tape so that I can tactile, like tactile tape so I can feel the edges of my counter Um, so they did that, all of that, but they also provided me with a, um, an aid on the show to kind of act as my eyes and my legs when I needed her. Mm -hmm. So they enforced like very strict rules to make sure I didn't have an advantage. So for example, um, she was allowed to describe me things in a very objective way, like tell me the color of the meat, but not tell me if the meat was burnt. Um, and if she had, if I needed something from the pantry, I could ask her to run to the pantry and get me a stand mixer, for example. And when she did that, it was essentially me running to the pantry. So I had to step back from my station and I wasn't allowed to touch anything, even if, you know, think something was boiling over or something was burning, I wasn't allowed to touch it. Um, because essentially I I'm supposed to be in the pantry grabbing something. So mm-hmm. they made sure that we followed the rules and there was like someone on the legal team on set every day, kind of listening into how we communicate with each other to make sure we didn't break any rules. Mm-hmm. So the producers did provide me with, I think certain uh, adaptations that allowed me to compete uh, more competitively, I guess mm-hmm. you would say. But of course, even then, like I know that there's like people you know, who watch the show that don't really know everything that goes on. And, and, you know, people did say like, oh, she had an advantage. There's someone there helping her, but they don't necessarily know all the rules that we had to follow. Um, Mm -hmm. and also I always try to explain too, and I'm like, do you realize how much more difficult it is to learn to communicate with someone that you had never met before Mm -hmm. (laughs) about cooking? Then, you know, if I, if I could see, I could immediately, you know, look up my counter and, and, and know exactly where I left something. But here I have to be like, you know, Cindy, where can you sh- take my hand and, you know, show me where I left my knife or something, you know, mm-hmm. so that of course takes longer. So for me, I also just had to learn to adapt and realize that, okay, it may take me longer to get through a challenge than someone who's sighted. So I always strategically picked a recipe that I knew I could execute in say 50 minutes. If I had a 60 minutes to finish a challenge, I would pick something that would take me less time. So I could mm-hmm. always give myself that sort of buffer. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was my experience on the show, but there were many times when I had very stressful challenges and a lot of them are the field challenges that took me out of the kitchen that I kind of learned to adapt to. And I learned where things were. And when we had to go out on the field and learn a completely new kitchen or a new environment, uh, it was very difficult because my brain was working at like full speed. Cause I have to remember where things are left. I have to remember the new uh, layout of the space I'm in and the environment I'm in, but at the same time, I'm 
working on a team with a bunch of people who have, don't really know how to work with someone who's visual impaired. So they'll move things and not tell me. Um, so there were so many times when I definitely felt like giving up, but mm-hmm. the part of me that is very, like I'd mentioned, stubborn and determined, refused to just throw in the towel. So I still always tried as hard as I could, even if I felt like I, I even if I felt defeated. Mm-hmm. You know, your determination is contagious, by the way, watching you like do that on national television. I'm sure a lot of people were going, wow, like if she could do that, <laughs> what I have to do is easy, right? Um, but you know, what you're talking about in the kitchen kind of reminds me of the, um, I think his name, I think the golfer's name was um, Casey Martin, if I believe. I might have that wrong, so don't quote me on that. But uh, that was in 2001 where there was a story where this golfer, I believe, had his leg amputated. And so he couldn't walk the PGA Tour. Well, he Mm -hmm. needed to use a cart, right? And a lot of people were up in arms with the fact that he needed to use a cart because they thought it wasn't fair. But, I mean, you have to level the playing field at some point, right? And so – Like, that's what kind of that story of you in the kitchen reminds me of is like, you know, can they give you talking tools like you have a helper on on deck and everything because it has to make the competition fair because you're put at a much bigger disadvantage than the other contestants. And so, I mean, obviously you persevered and you did fantastic. You won. Um, But something else that I wanted to ask you about um, was the crab. Can you tell us a little bit about the live crab? <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the behind the scenes stuff that went on with there. So okay. I, I remember that when we were about to come up on that challenge and I remember thinking, well, I hope Ryan picks the canned crab for me because I do not want to deal with the live crab. <laughs> Plus I was already thinking, okay, you know, all, everyone else wanted the live crab because you know, of course live crab would probably taste better than canned crab. But I was in my head, I was thinking, okay, I know how to make Vietnamese egg rolls really well. I can totally use the canned crab mm-hmm. and make it taste pretty good. And I don't want to deal with the live crab because I haven't broken down many live uh, uh, crustaceans in my life uh, as a visually impaired person since I lost my vision. So I remember already thinking that I was one of the few that wanted the canned crab. And then when Ryan gave, assigned me the live crab for that challenge, and oh. I remember people were thinking, and you know, people were thinking, oh, what a what an a-hole. Like, I can't believe he gave the, the blind woman a live crab. But honestly, I was flattered because in my head, I was thinking, <laughs> oh, he thinks I'm serious competition. So he's, of course, he's going to, you know, it's a competition. Of course, he's going to try to knock out his opponent. So I, I felt flattered that he gave me something that he thought would be challenging for me because then it made me feel like he took me seriously and it wasn't mm-hmm. a pity assignment to give me the, the canned crab. So, um, yeah, I, it was definitely a challenge with the live crab, but I, I think I managed. And I, I think I'm mm-hmm. also, you know, on that show, I'm met, all of us are constantly running on adrenaline anyway. So I was just like, all right, I just need to figure out how to, to, to make this into a dish. And so I just kind of went balls to the wall and, and did it. Can we talk about your competitive edge really quick? Because like, just listening to you say, I'm flattered that he gave me the, the live crab. Like, oh my gosh, like, like, uh, oh my gosh. I mean, I, I am extremely uh, competitive. You can ask all of my good <laughs> friends and family. I'm the kind of person that like, if we pull out a board game, I'm all on board and I'm, I'm always trying to win. So I think definitely having that, um, the, the nature of loving competition or always wanting to try to be the best, mm-hmm. uh, is, is something that helped me succeed on the show because, um, 
yeah, you know, I don't, I don't want to come out on the bottom. I always do want to come out on top. Mm -hmm. I didn't always expect to come out on top, but I wanted to. So I think that's, that's also the important difference is, uh, between, I think someone who has healthy, uh, has a healthy, uh, competitive nature versus mm-hmm. someone who's arrogant, I think. So mm-hmm. it's not like I always thought I was the best, but I wanted to, I always wanted to be the best. And I think that's what also made a difference. And I think the judges saw that in me that I wasn't always the one that went into the kitchen thinking, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to school everyone else and be the best cook always, even though I don't know mm-hmm. what the challenge is yet. For me, I was pretty humble. I'm always like, I'm always here to learn. And there's always going to be things that are hard and maybe completely out of my comfort zone, but I'm always going to try my best. And and hope that I come out on top. You know, I think that you just hit another nail on the head in this conversation is that there's a big difference between having a strong competitive edge and being arrogant, just like there's a difference between confidence and arrogance. And I think that people can see right through that, right? Like if you're a competitive person and you always want to be the best, there are points where you might realize like, okay, maybe I'm not the best at this, but I, I'm going to learn because I want to be. Being arrogant is just getting up there almost with this sense of entitledness. Would you agree? I completely agree with you. Yes. And I think people can, I think most people can sense that as well. And I think mm-hmm. that's also why I've become like a fan favorite. And, and honestly, even though it was a competition, I, I think a lot of the other um, contestants uh, respected me because I, I wasn't out there to, 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 I was out there to win like the rest of them, but I wasn't out there to say like, Oh, I know much more about cooking than you. I really was there thinking, okay, well, you know, I know some stuff about cooking, but there's a lot for me to learn. And hopefully we learn from each other and hopefully this is a a healthy competition. (laughs) Well, well, Christine, I know that, you know, we're about to wrap up. I want to respect your time, but I do want to ask you before we do, you know, what is the biggest lesson that you've learned that you can share with our listeners, like through, you know, this second, you know, half of your journey in life? There are a few things. Um, I want to say one is trust your gut and your intuition. I think that's something that helped me succeed in the MasterChef competition is because there were some challenges towards the beginning uh, when I tried to impress the judges and I, I did things that were beyond my comfort zone or that I didn't know much about whether it be cooking with certain ingredients or using certain techniques that I wasn't that familiar with. And then I, I started, and those I realized were my most um, uh, failed moments, I guess, in the, in the competition. And so what I learned was that these judges have eaten at the best restaurants in the world. Some of them cook some of the best food in the world. There's no way that me, some, some little home cook is going to go there and cook something that's the best meal they've ever had in their lives. For me, it was really... Once I started realizing that and trusting my gut to say like, hey, you know what? I'm just going to cook something I want to eat. And Mm -hmm. if I think it's good, then um, hopefully the judges will also agree. So for me, I started I started trusting my intuition and, you know, the little voice inside my stomach saying, oh, you should just cook this humble dish because you really like the dish. Who cares about what other people will think? If you really believe in what you're cooking or what you're doing or what you're putting out there in the world, then hopefully someone else will believe in it too, or someone else will bound to believe in it as well. Mm -hmm. So I think one thing I definitely learned um, in the past 10 years is to trust my gut and my intuition more. Uh, I think it's also hard as a, as a, um, in a woman of color, who's also uh, dealing with a disability. I think that's definitely hard um, for someone like me to trust my gut more. It's because a lot of us suffer from, you know, what they say, call imposter syndrome. So 
we don't necessarily think like our voice matters or what we believe in is, is correct. So mm-hmm. I think that's a struggle that I still have to this day, but I'm getting better at it. And I, I think that's something I, I want to just push people, regardless of where you're from or what your background is, to, to trust your gut more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the second thing that I, I learned that was also some, a hard lesson um, is to learn to say no. Uh, I think also as uh, an Asian American woman were, you know, growing up, uh, I was always taught with the stereotype, like you are to, you know, just if it's something, you know, if something is asked of you by someone in authority, like you should just say yes and suck it up and do it, even if it's not something you enjoy. And it it took a long time for me to get to where I am and comfortable in my own skin to learn to say no. So Mm I think right after MasterChef, like I had so many people coming to me for so many different things and I was saying yes to everything. One is partly because I don't know how long, you know, I I wanted to strike while the iron's hot. I don't really know how long this like ride will last. So I was saying yes to things, not really thinking it through, like, how is this going to help me reach my goal in the long term? Mm -hmm. But um, also just wanting to please people. I always would say yes, because I don't like saying no and making someone unhappy But over time, I was starting to feel burnt out and I didn't feel happy at all. Uh, And so I realized that it it is important to say no so that it frees up your time and your energy and your efforts to say yes to the things that you really do care about. So something that I I get my laptop to say to me every morning when I turn it on is... Before you say yes to something, make sure it makes you happy and uh, it makes sure that it helps you reach your your goals. So something along those lines. So basically learn to say no and, you you know, you can always politely decline things and doesn't mean no forever. It just could mean just no at that time. But mm-hmm. I think people need to take more care of themselves and listen to themselves more and, and understand that we're still human and we still need everyone's threshold is different and we still need downtime and time to ourselves and, and to take care of ourselves. Those are all such, you know, such great lessons. And I'm, I'm glad that you hit on all of those points because, I mean, I think that's great advice for everybody. And with the imposter syndrome, I, I do think like a lot of people experience this imposter syndrome where, you know, you think like everybody knows something that you don't and you're just or can do something that you can't do and you're almost faking it till you make it. But the reality is everybody's almost in a position where they're faking it till they make it. We're all facing a imposter syndrome mm-hmm. in a way, you know? So, so knowing, just having the confidence to take the knowledge that you have, the skills that you have and move forward anyway, you'll learn, you know, in the long run, if you move forward, you'll learn. If you stay put and you let that imposter syndrome get in the way, you're never going to move forward. And I also love that you brought up, you know, learning how to say no, because I think that we live in a culture and in a time where everybody's turning into yes men, you know, like you have to grab every single opportunity, but you you don't You have to grab the right mm-hmm. ones. If you fill your cup with everything, eventually it's going to overflow and you're going to be miserable. You have to learn to say no to things that, like you said, like aren't going to make you happy. They're not going to bring you joy and they're not going to help you reach your goals in the long run. Right. So Christine, thank you so much for joining us here today. Honestly, I love your story. I loved watching you on MasterChef. I'm honored to have this conversation with you because like, like I said, your story on national television reached the hearts of millions of people. And I, I'm just so honored that you've given us a chance to use our platform to help share it. So thank you for coming on. And if our guests and our listeners want to know more about you or hear more from you, where can they find you? 
I mean, I'm pretty much on a lot of social media, so you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. My handle is at the blind book. All right. Well, thank you for coming on here today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you. We'll see you soon. This has been Success Stories with Madison Piper. If you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe, drop a review, and tell your friends. If you'd like to hear more shows like this one, go to success.com slash podcasts.